welcome to Down to Salis Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. During the long history of Arctic exploration, of expeditions that disappeared, and of the many attempts to find them, one in particular stands out for its connection with Captain Isaac Bartlett of Brigus. Here is Ella Manuel's retelling of the rescue in 1873 of shipwreck survivors from southward drifting Greenland ice floes. Recently I was reminded of a yarn, one of those I was brought up on, about how Skipper Isaac Bartlett rescued some of the survivors of the ill-fated Polaris expedition. As my father said, it wasn't so strange as rescuing them. What was so strange was his being where he was at the time that they were there. Almost a accident, you might say. Now, Isaac was from the wealthy town of Brigus, where seafaring captains lived in great style, high-minded as goats, as one writer of the day said, and why not? They had big houses with high ceilings and plastered walls, polished floors, Brussels carpets, and crimson curtains. They served tea from silver urns into cups of the finest china and covered their tables with real Irish linens. The tables were solid mahogany, and so was the rest of the furniture brought out from England in their own vessels. The heads of the household laid down fine cellars of port and sherry and brandy, and at holiday times they weren't above a tot of rum drunk the toast of Bloody decks to ye. One clergyman being offered a drink to warm himself to just that toast, remonstrated with his briggest host, Sir, I cannot drink to such a heathen toast as that, and was told it meant, Here's wishing you a good sealing voyage. Now the briggest captains were among the toughest old salts that ever our island bred and to them Labrador and Greenland waters were as familiar as the coves where their ships lay at anchor. They'd push their prows wherever seals or whales could be found, and if any adventurous gentleman without the necessary knowledge wished to penetrate the unknown, a Bartlett could always be signed on as a skipper. Why, it was about a decade earlier that John Bartlett had skippered the ship of the American Hayes expedition, and sailed her way up the Greenland coast and into the furthest Arctic. And it was Will Norman of Brigus who led the Greeley party out of Greenland. And of course the best known of all was Captain Bob Bartlett, the great nephew of John and Isaac, who accompanied Peary on his North Pole explorations. It was in the summer of 1873 that Isaac Bartlett took his vessel, the Tigress, on the annual seal hunt. He brought home a bumper crop without much effort, and when he had unloaded, and the season was still in full swing, he cruised north along the Labrador coast to look for another seal herd. All was well as they picked up seals here and there, until a day came when all thought of seals was driven far, far from their minds. April the 30th was a day like any other, foggy and not very windy, when suddenly the lookout shouted, 
The crew tumbled to the rails. Captain Isaac Bartlett picked up his glass. There was something moving out on the ice. The dark specks came into focus, moving, but not like seals or anything else they'd ever seen on an ice floe. Isaac stared and stared, and then he put down his glass and gave the helmsman an order. The tigress moved ponderously through the ice floes, and as she closed in, what they saw left the crew speechless. Now I must go back and sketch in light strokes the background to this story. In 1860, American newspaper man Charles Francis Hall, long driven by an obsession about the lost Franklin expedition, set sail for Greenland to find it. Over the next decade, he attempted twice to find traces of Franklin, but to no avail. With these Arctic experiences and valuable contacts he had made with the Inuit, Hall persuaded the U.S. government to back yet another expedition, this time to reach the North Pole. He managed to acquire an old ship, which he renamed Polaris, and in June 1871 headed north again with a full crew. They reached northern Greenland, but only after much argument and dissension among the crew and officers. Following an exploratory sledging journey, Hall returned to the ship and shortly fell ill. Before he died, he accused members of his crew of poisoning him. Though the general interpretation at the time was that he had had a stroke, nearly a century later his body was exhumed to discover that, indeed, he had ingested a large quantity of arsenic in the last two weeks of his life. During the winter, as the ship lay frozen in the Greenland waters, they took on two Inuit men, their wives and little children. The following summer, with Hall now dead, the decision was made to return home. However, as Bob Bartlett, a generation later, wrote out of bitter knowledge, You can make all the plans you want in the far north, and write them out in hundreds and hundreds of pages, using all the words in the dictionary, but the finer the plan you have, the worse it will go to smash when the wind and the ice and the drifting snow take charge. And that's what happened to the Polaris and the plan for her. Shortly after she started to head south, the Polaris was caught, moving helplessly among the grinding, crushing ice. For two months, all aboard lived in terror, wondering from moment to moment when their ship would be crushed. Just when they thought they had survived the worst, a fierce storm blew the Polaris against the ice, and a huge piece penetrated her hull. In the twilight, the howling wind and the vicious snow squalls, they began to heave what they could onto the ice. With despair to lend them strength, they threw boxes, barrels, cans, beds, coal, and clothing overboard. And as the ice climbed up and over the ship, they moved the women and children to the safety of the floes. Suddenly the ice began to crack, and those on the pans clawed and thrust at their gear and crawled to the comparative safety of a large ice floe. Then more and more open leads appeared, and the ice divided. The ship lurched, a mighty gust of wind took her, as lightning swift the ice pressure shifted, and she broke free. 
Through the darkness of the northern twilight, those still on board watched the flow with its human cargo break into smaller pieces. They saw one of the Inuit rush to pick up his baby and saw men leave the ice floe in a desperate attempt to return to the ship. They tried to launch their boats to pick them up, but in vain. That was October 15, 1872. Official records give us the story of what happened from then on. The Polaris found Anchorage, and her men lived comfortably with the help from friendly Greenlanders, until the spring, when they were picked up by a whaler and returned home via Scotland. Meanwhile, on the ice floe were George Tyson, the assistant navigator who quickly took command, the ship's steward, seven sailors, and the two Inuit families, without whom they would likely not have survived the ordeal I am about to tell you. They found the ice floe was about five miles around, with plenty of room to build snow houses, which they did. But there was very little food on the ice. Fourteen cans of pemmican, eleven bags of bread, a can of dried apples, and fourteen hams, all to feed nineteen people, including the three-month-old baby of Hans Hendricks, the Greenland Inuit. There were two whaleboats, two kayaks, a small canvas tent, a compass, and a chronometer. Hans and the other Inuit, John, who came from the Canadian side of the Naras Strait, built three snow houses and went hunting in their kayaks as the group drifted helplessly in darkness, wind, and snow. To begin with, they had little luck hunting, and Tyson said that the first seal they caught they ate uncooked, skin, hair, and all. The next seal they managed to cook, making a small fire with the bones and blubber of the first one. Once Tyson wrote, I've dined today on two feet of frozen entrails and a little blubber. Only wish we had plenty of that. The ice they were on was part of a pack drifting south with the Labrador current, and as they well knew it was a race between gradually lengthening days, the increase in temperature, and the chance of sighting a boat. After eighty-three days, surviving on seals, birds, and even one bear the Inuit shot, they were threatened with a breakup of the ice, so people remained awake and dressed, keeping all of their necessities ready in case of sudden disaster. Fortunately, the ice houses proved to be on the thickest and most solid part of the flow, and they had two comforts, good health and a speed of 23 miles a day, bringing them closer to the haunts of men. The ice pan got smaller and smaller, and then separated entirely from the pack and drifted towards the open ocean. On April the 1st, said Tyson, it was necessary to abandon the flow, which was now wasted to such an extent that it was no longer safe. So they took to the one boat they had left, built to hold six to eight men, had now carried twelve men, two women, and five children. They kept only their tent and a little meat, bread and pemmican, and went from flow to flow, moving by boat, when one after another pan became uninhabitable. Having now drifted 2,900 kilometers in six months, on April 28th they saw their first ship, but she didn't see them. Next day another, but as they watched she disappeared beyond the horizon. On the 30th, a fog blotted out their surroundings. Suddenly it cleared, and there in front of their eyes was a ship. Isaac Bartlett in his tigress had spotted them. 
He hauled them on board, all nineteen of them, and not an hour too soon, for Isaac's log revealed that for the next two days a storm of extreme severity raged incessantly. Their last flow could not have survived this gale. Of course, everyone on the Tigris wanted to know their story, and one incredulous sealer even asked, And was you on it day and night? Eventually the story was told, and the tiger sailed homeward, stopping only to collect more seals. Every man jack of them survived to be wined and dined in the fabulous Briggs homes before they were speeded on their way to families who had long since given them up for dead. As we used to say at home, trust those old swilers. They'll fish anything out of the sea. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. In next week's episode, Ella tells of her admiration for an old salt she never met.